We have spent years and years working with the healthcare systems because we don't believe you can wait for the government or the insurance companies to fix it. The healthcare system can only be fixed from the inside where the patients reside and where the providers are delivering care. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 7 of Delve a podcast from McGill University's Deshotel Faculty of Management, where we'll hear from management researchers and practitioners as they explore the latest ecological, social, and economic challenges that we face as a society. I'm your host, Mo Akif, and today we're talking about modernizing our healthcare system. For the past year, our hospitals have experienced unprecedented strain treating the masses of patients infected with COVID-19, a challenge that has revealed many important barriers to accessing quality care. So, in the middle of a pandemic, it seems only fitting that we'd explore the advances taking place to modernize healthcare delivery, many of which are powered by disruptive technologies. To tell us more about what this transformation could look like and how we can ensure that no one's left behind, we're joined by Susan DeVore, CEO of Premier Inc., a leading U.S.-based healthcare improvement company, and Beste Kuchukyazici, former McGill professor of operations management, who begins the conversation. You may already know that actually healthcare expenditures accounts for roughly 11% of the overall GDP of Canada. And this, the growth rate is much faster than the growth rate of the GDP. The annual cost of healthcare system to Canadian economy is around $240 billion a year. And if we only focus for the Quebec context, last year Quebec government spent more than 40% of its budget to healthcare. For most of the OECD countries, the healthcare expenditures account for a significant portion of their GDP, ranging between 9.5% to 16%. And in terms of the value, of care they provide to their patients, they are not, it's not satisfactory as well. So, before diving into the details of our discussion related to the transformation of the healthcare or the redefining of the healthcare, first of all, I would like to get your opinion about the challenge that we are facing. We are investing a lot to the healthcare system, but why are we struggling in producing the value out of it? I think the biggest challenge that most healthcare systems have is they have evolved as extremely complex and complicated systems. I think if we could all blow it up and start over, today we would design a very different system. But because we have incrementalized it over the years, uh, we've designed a system that's very hard to change. Um, In the U.S., and I'll speak primarily for the U.S. system because I know it uh, the best, Um, I think for us, it it functions a little bit like a restaurant. Um, Everybody that comes into the restaurant has to be served, uh, whether they can pay or not. Um, Everybody gets served uh, by servers who don't know what things on the menu cost. Um, The people preparing the food have unlimited ability to choose ingredients Um, And it's a system that really, um, if the customer isn't happy when they leave in the U.S., they can sue sue the restaurant. And so you have this industry 
where there's a disconnect between the service being provided, who's paying the cost, and who has control over any of the pieces or parts of the system. Lots of different groups and people have decision-making ability about all the pieces and parts. It's kind of a common misconception that the U.S. is completely privatized system. It's actually a hybrid model. Uh, it's roughly half and half, Medicare and Medicaid, which is um, our, our universal programs for people over 65 and for the poor populations, are about half of, half of the spend. It is a $3 trillion budget in the U.S., uh, we are uh, distinguished by having probably the highest percentage of GDP uh, in healthcare costs. It's an interesting um, statistic, though, because I think in the U.S. we have very much uh, a medicalization of social issues. And so if you were to take the social care spend and the medical spend and put them together, the U.S. would be somewhere in the middle of the pack. But we spend a lot more money on the medical care piece and a lot less money on the social care piece. And so a lot of the challenges, I think, have to do with the complexity of the system and the misalignment of the incentives and the accountabilities for various parts of the system. Uh, actually, a Talking about the changing of the healthcare system or healthcare reforms is not a new thing. But this time, actually, we are just taking it a step, a step further and we are discussing about redefining the healthcare system. So, why do we need to redefine the healthcare system for the current and future generations? Because it doesn't work. I mean, it doesn't work. My, uh, my mother died of sepsis um, that was preventable. My grandson ended up in a hospital with a hip infection that we believe was from a vaccine. Um, and it just doesn't work. There are too many handoffs. There are too, many, uh, too much overuse, too much misuse, too much underuse. Um, and so I, I think the reason we have to redefine it is because it doesn't work and because it costs too much and because it doesn't satisfy patients, um, and because it actually doesn't yield an increase in longevity, and it doesn't yield um, enough improvement in quality and safety uh, in the healthcare delivery system. Um, I've been with Premier for 15 years. Premier was an organization that was actually started by healthcare systems, not-for-profit healthcare systems in the U.S., they were much like, I think, the Canadian system and still are with your 10 provinces and your three territories and everybody has autonomy to sort of deliver health care in some ways the way that they, they want to. And therefore, there was no aggregation power because it was all fragmented into the pieces and parts. So the thousands of hospitals got together and they said, well, we'll form our own national aggregation entity. So the 4,000 hospitals that are a part of Premier today basically owned 100% of the company. Um, and the company was designed to aggregate all of their supply chain spending, meaning their drugs, their capital equipment, their medical devices, their commodities, everything, and help them negotiate better pricing to drive savings. At the same time, they decided to start building analytic databases 
around clinical care, outcomes, cost, resource utilization. And so now here we are uh, 25 years later from the initial formation, and we have data on 45% of the patients in the country, and we aggregate $60 billion of spend to help them negotiate better pricing. And that gives us um, a lot of visibility into what's working and what's not working. And so as we think about redefining the healthcare system, and the wicked question, I think, for redefining the healthcare system is, how do you simultaneously, not sequentially, not one piece and not the other piece, how do you simultaneously follow the evidence, and the evidence is changing at lightning speed, prevent mortality, prevent harm, uh, improve quality, reduce readmissions, reduce cost, and satisfy the patient. And how do you do all six or seven of those things at the same time? And so we have spent years and years working with the healthcare systems because we don't believe you can wait for the government or the insurance companies to fix it. We have a fundamental belief that the healthcare system can only be fixed from the inside where the patients reside and where the providers, all kinds of providers, are delivering care. You have to have payment models that incent the right behaviors, but the actual changing the way care is delivered has to sort of happen inside the system. So once you were listing the performance criteria that you are checking, you talk about the mortality, reduction right. of the admission rates, increasing right. the safety and patient satisfaction, which are kind of new concepts to the healthcare. So can we say that in the redefinition of the healthcare, it will be patient-centered? I think it's absolutely patient-centered, but I think that when we are in uh, hybrid systems that are partially public, partially private, or in purely public uh, systems, um, it's, it, it's too easy not to have the patient in the center. Yes, exactly. And the bureaucracy is in the center, or the territory is in the center, or the individual role you play is in the center, and everybody's protecting their, their turf. And so I think where, where the U.S. has decided they need to go, mostly because of a cost problem, um, is new um, models of payment, which actually um, give a whole bucket of money to a system and say, you figure out how to deliver healthcare more effectively and use the data and analytics that you have to deliver that healthcare more effectively. When I was here in school, everybody was excited because Obama looked like he was going to win the election in the U.S., and when he won the election, he very intently implemented Obamacare, which essentially tried to at least provide access to health care for uh, lots of people that were uninsured in the U.S. prior to that time. And largely, we have accomplished that. Um, so then President Trump takes over, tries to repeal and replace Obamacare, can't get it done uh, legislatively. Nobody would admit this. But Obama solved the access problem, and now the Trump administration thinks they need to solve the cost problem. And the Trump administration, in many ways, is thankful that the uh, Obamacare set up an innovation center, funded it with $10 billion. 
funded the expansion of Medicaid, which is the program for the poor. And in that legislation gave the power uh, to the regulator, not the legislators, to innovate in the innovation center new payment models and new delivery models and then port it over to mandatory law. So the truth is that the Trump administration, I think, is thrilled they have the innovation center, is thrilled that it was funded by somebody else, and is thrilled that they now have the regulatory power to test new models and then make them uh, regulatory requirements. And so I think that in the U.S. we're going to see a lot faster movement to coordinated care models, accountable care models, and, and other models of healthcare. Actually, you mentioned about the reforms in the payment models, which are basically shifting the risk from the shoulders of the purchaser of the payer to the healthcare providers. Right. So they will be accountable for redu- reduction of the cost. What will be right. the implications on the health outcomes? It's a great question. And so if you remember the, the teachings of Henry Mintzberg, he would say governments are designed to control and to protect and to provide access. And providers are designed to provide care and provide cure. And suppliers and insurance companies are people in the middle of all that that have profit margins. And so if you say, you know, you take these, these three components and you um, try to create alternative payment models, how would you do that and protect quality and safety? And I think the reality is governments want a predictable budget. They want a predictable budget. We don't have it in the U.S. because we have this fee-for-service payment environment and they can't predict and they can't control it going to 17 18% of the GDP. Governments here, I'm sure, want a predictable line item for health care costs. And I think what that means is they will shift the provider delivery risk to the providers. And so they're trying to think of models that actually put providers in control of the risk and also maybe give them, a li- in the U.S., maybe not so much here, some upside if they perform well. Um, I think it's a fallacy to say that... Um, higher quality health care costs more. Actually, our work in this area would indicate that higher quality care means fewer days in the hospital, means fewer tests, means fewer antibiotics, means less variation, means more primary care, means more social determinants of health, means more genomic testing so you know which drugs work and don't work so you don't spend a bunch of money on drugs that don't work. And so all of our data would indicate that high-quality care um, can be a lot more efficient. And so I don't actually think the alternative payment models necessarily will have a negative impact on outcomes or quality. I think they could have a positive impact. But under the condition that actually, in my opinion, if you design the control mechanisms properly right. and make sure that the quality indicators are also taken into account while assessing the right. performance and the payments, and right. where pay-for-performance systems are also getting uh, quite popular in that sense. Yes. And I think it's an evolution. I don't think you move from a fee-for-service model to a global payment model. I think there are steps in between. 
So in the U.S., they have something called value-based purchasing, value-based payment, which is a fee-for-service payment, and then you have a bonus or a penalty based on your quality metrics. Um, And then they're moving from there to something called bundled payment, where for an orthopedic procedure, you put the hospital, the doctor, the implant, the post-acute care together in a bundle and pay for that bundle. And then they have an even more evolved model that's called an accountable care organization where a health system, which includes hospitals, doctors, nursing homes, ancillary capabilities, signs up for a population and to take care of that population for a certain amount of money. And so what's happening in the U.S. is the healthcare systems are evolving themselves, experimenting, learning, building the infrastructure for these models so that as that risk gets shifted to them, um, they, can, they, they will have learned how to do it and they will have the data technology and infrastructure um, that they need. One of the problems in the U.S. is there are 900 different measures of quality and safety. And so you have Medicare measures, you have 50 states who have their own measures, you have commercial insurance companies who have their own measures, you have employers that have their own measures. Um, And so it's really hard, and it's what Premier tries to do, really hard to standardize and normalize the performance across the whole country. And you already mentioned that to be able to have this kind of reforms or drastic change in the healthcare environment, we need an investment for the infrastructure. We need to measure the performance, which requires the technological investments, technological investments as well, and training of the staff. And so far, if you look at the expenses for the U.S. healthcare system, 25% of the expenses are already administrative costs. And these numbers are around 10 to 15% for Canada. So what will be the implications of these infrastructure investments and educational investments on the healthcare costs? Yeah, you all do a much better job on the administrative costs than we do, and I think it's because you have more standardized measurement even across the country that that the government um, influences. I think we'll have more of that in the U.S. uh, uh, over time. I think one of the the advantages in the U.S., in my opinion, is the consumer and the disruptors in the U.S., like Google, like... Amazon, um, like these companies that are using artificial intelligence and data to try to predict um, needs of of patients. And I think that um, they can disrupt the market in the U.S. maybe easier than they can disrupt a healthcare market like Canada because they can't, can't get in as easily as they can get in in the U.S. And I think that that... Um, that that disruption, which is going to be very patient-centered because all of those companies live and breathe consumer. What does the consumer want? How do I make it more convenient? How do I make it more effective? And, and in the U.S., when they get frustrated, a disruptor gives them something to, to use as a catalyst to change the system. And so I think that this infrastructure thing in many ways, is going to be driven by technology companies, data companies, with infrastructure that actually does a better job of helping a health system figure out how to take that risk. You know, we can all be critical of our healthcare systems. 
I don't think 10 years ago we would have been in a place where we could do that, and I don't think you would either. We had 20% adoption of EHRs, electronic health records, you know, 10 years ago. We have 80%, 90% adoption now. If you don't have an electronic health record, it's really hard if you don't have that infrastructure to coordinate the health care. So I think we're, I, 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 I think I'm the luckiest girl alive because we, we're in a place and a time with artificial intelligence, with cloud-based computing, with technology infrastructure, with um, empowered consumers. Um, and we just have to figure out how to get the governments and the insurance companies to, to allow the evolution to happen. Um, but I think that infrastructure thing is a totally different dynamic today than it would have been 10 years ago. Uh, now, uh, having understood that the current challenge of the healthcare system and urgency of this transformation, I would like to ask your vision about the future healthcare system. So, how do you paint the picture of the future healthcare system? Where will be how how will be the healthcare system in ten years now? I have to bring my new uniquely American opinion to it, which is that. Um, the best system in my mind is going to be a hybrid system. And when I was at McGill, I wrote my papers around uh, what I was learning and what the strategy for Premier would be. And the aha moment to me at McGill was this concept that you could have a very important social mission, but that you could figure out how to execute that social mission with business principles. And so to me, the best possible outcome is that you have um, access to care for all. So everybody has access, either through Medicare, Medicaid, commercial insurance, insurance exchanges, but you have access to health care for everybody. That you have minimum benefit plan design so you know you have at least um, the, the, the right health care a benefit plan design. I think your layering is challenging because you're missing some of the big pieces that might make it unaffordable, the layer two, layer three um, healthcare coverage. Um, and then I think that you take those federal or state dollars in global payment models and you force the delivery system um, to a risk-based model where they have to figure out how to most efficiently and clinically effectively deliver the care within the level of investment a country decides they're going to make in healthcare. And I think nobody has, or at least we haven't decided how much investment we're willing to make to the um, detriment of education or other programs, infrastructure, roads, other programs uh, in the country. So you define the investment level, you create these global models, you then send it to the private sector, in my mind, that, that enables competition amongst and between um, different parts of the system because it keeps us all on our toes. I mean, Premier does $60 billion of supply chain buying, and who do you think I worry about every night? We buy drugs, we buy supplies, we buy commodities for hospitals, for doctors, for nursing homes, for all kinds of people. Amazon, 
right? Amazon's a huge disruptor. Amazon sees that $3 trillion of spend in the healthcare industry. And I think it's a good thing that it keeps me awake at night because it makes me keep thinking about who's going to disrupt, who's going to create an Uber, who's going to create a product or a service that is more efficient, more effective, patients and consumers like it better, and it, and it delivers better outcomes. Um, so, so, I, so I believe that these hybrid models where you take those fixed budgets and you enable um, parts of the system and, and competitors to keep each other honest and you um, foster innovation and you foster new models and you foster experimentation. But it's messy. You know, it's not easy. So if we shift our focus to the Canadian healthcare system, and at this point, actually, I would like to make a quick clarification about the Canadian healthcare system as well to avoid any misperceptions. Since we have a universal healthcare system, most believe, people believe that we have a public healthcare system. But in Canada, we have a public-private hybrid healthcare system as well. So, in terms of delivering of the healthcare, uh, the private sector is delivering the healthcare. The physicians and most of the hospitals are private entities. However, the government exercises a certain authority on these healthcare, the healthcare providers while they are delivering their healthcare. In the meantime, regarding the, public, the financing of the healthcare, it's not fully publicly financed, publicly funded. 70% of the healthcare is financed by the public through the Medicare insurance programs of the provinces, where 30% is funded by the private sector. But thinking about this uh, hybrid model, which is very specific to the Canadian healthcare system, because once we look at the other examples who other countries which have universal healthcare system, Canada could be the only one which the, the private sector delivers the healthcare. What will be the challenge? What will be the basic steps that we have to go through? Well, I think one of the challenges you have is the same as we have. And I think your provinces and territories are like our states. And so we have 50 different programs, and you have 13 different uh, programs. You know, it's really interesting because I do think if you put 50 people in a room together, you should be able to come up with a standard of measurement for a healthcare system. One standard of, me- you know, multiple measures, but one standard. So when we were, it was so interesting when we built this um, collaborative, nobody was measuring harm. There were not standard measures of harm at that time. So we decided to get 50 physicians in a room, and, and we wanted to develop 20 or 30 measures of harm. We were going to build them in our technology, and we were going to measure them. So how long do you think it took us to get to 25 measures of harm? And this was just for 400 hospitals. This was not even for a country, but one year, one year. We did the measurement. And we, we uh, were measuring 25 or 30 um, forms of harm. And then we created this index called a harm index so that you could um, compare health systems. So how many of those 25 measures do you think actually moved the harm index for a health system? Four. And so there's this concept of we should all be able to get to standard measurement it's fewer measures than we think. 
and, and we have the technology, we have the technological ability. So this is all about people, culture, turf, politics, money. You know, it's about all those other things. It's not about the ability to actually define what a high-performing healthcare system looks like. We built this collaborative where we were measuring all these things. We got 400 hospitals to agree to a common definition of observed to expected mortality, common definition of harm, common definition of cost, like what are the elements you're going to include in cost, common definition of patient satisfaction, common definition of readmissions, common definition of the evidence-based care, you know, list of checklist of things um, that we were going to measure. And we identified the top 20% high-performing health systems as the bar. And, and we ran that collaborative with those 350, 400 hospitals for six years, saved $18 billion just with 400 hospitals, and uh, reduced observed to expected mortality by 200,000 lives. And so it, it, it's not that this is not doable. The question is, how do you create the will and how do you uh, create the environment for, for people to collaborate and people to improve? So as I mentioned before, since although the healthcare is delivered by the private sector, the governments, either the federal or the provincial government, exercise a certain authority in the Canadian system right. compared to the U.S. Right. So is it a good thing for us or the bad thing? I think it's such an advantage for you. So I think if the federal government defined standards of technological interoperability, if they defined standards of quality and safety and cost measurement, if they um, if they had a block granting process that was fair and equitable and adjusted for socioeconomic factors for different markets and that sort of thing. Um, and then if they said to the healthcare system, uh, you go figure it out, um, all of the first part works. It's that last part that's really hard, right? This transformation does not only include changing the payment models, this transformation requires a big cultural change in the healthcare environment as well. Yeah. But the healthcare environment, I don't know, you know, my sense is. When you put the data in front of physicians or in front of hospitals or in front of other practitioners, public health, they want to get to better outcomes. They just either don't know how or they don't know how to work through the barriers or they don't have the data. Um, and so uh, actually in, in our world, we created these collaboratives and there was no government mandate to do it. There was no payment associated with it at the time that we did it. And we said, who will sign up to, one, be transparent with each other, all 400 of you, two, agree to standard measurement, three, participate to drive the performance improvement, four, you know, use standard technology to do it so you have standard measurement. And, and they all did that because they wanted, and maybe this is the market competitive environment in the U.S., they wanted to be able to say, 
I have the best mortality scores, the best harm record, the best quality, the best evidence-based care, the lowest rate of readmissions. And if you come to my healthcare system, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to give you non-evidence-based care. I'm going to try to satisfy you as a consumer. And so the progressive thinker said, it doesn't matter what the government does or what the insurance companies do. That's what I want to be. But it was 400 out of 4,000. So the real challenge for all of us is how you scale um, that improvement. And to close the loop, I would like to see, get your opinion regarding the measuring the success of this transformation. So to me, you have to figure out uh, what the accountabilities are. And I think in most countries, it's very confused. So what is the accountability of the federal government? And what would those measures be? So the federal government might be access to care. It might be percent of GDP. It might be total cost per capita. It might be life expectancy. It might be infant mortality. So, so figure out the accountability accountability first and say, okay, that's what the federal government owns. And you all have the ability to standardize that across, across the country. I mean, we have the ability to do it for Medicare. We don't have the ability to do it for Medicaid because every state does it their own way. We can't force the commercial insurance companies or the employers to do that at this point. So I actually think you're, you should lead the way. You should lead the way for the world in standard measurement and accountability for the various buckets of healthcare. That was Susan DeVore and Professor Beste Kuchukiazici talking about the transformations taking hold in the Canadian and American healthcare systems. If you enjoyed this podcast and want more insights, you can subscribe on your podcast app of choice or visit us at mcgill.ca slash delve.